Hello and welcome to the Fast Break Podcast. This is Amon Kidwai. Pleased to be joined by the full house, Ryan Goodman, Dan Madigan, and Patrick Martin. We've got an exciting slate of UConn games to talk about. The, after a ride through the very low low ends of low major Division I basketball, UConn finally played some uh, real big opponents, visiting Kansas, falling just short in a four-point loss, and then just a couple days later, really, uh, beating North Carolina at Madison Square Garden. Nice bounce back win for the Huskies. Uh, two huge games. Obviously, we saw a lot a lot of different stuff from the Huskies. First of all, I know that a couple of folks were at the Kansas game. Uh, Madigan, I, I know you're one of them. What was it like in Lawrence? I was completely blown away by the entire experience uh at allen Fieldhouse. um had really high expectations going in it's been a, a bucket list item and i know um when i saw uconn and kansas playing um when the schedule came out it was something that i knew i was really interested in checking out um really like a mecca of college basketball um and it lived up to all the expectations that i had and exceeded them honestly um it's a really cool building. Uh, the whole facility is really great. They have um, like their museum, athletics museum um, as like basically one of the gates to walk into the field house. They have the rules of basketball um, on display as well. So there's a lot of cool stuff to check out. Um, can't recommend the trip enough if anyone's ever interested in going for, for another game. Um, coolest thing to me was that Allen Fieldhouse is not uh, anything special. It's not uh, there's no sky boxes. There's no suites. There's really not any chair back seats. It's just a bunch of bleachers with 16,000, 17,000 people standing on top of each other, um, yelling as loud as they can for, for 40 plus minutes, a, a couple of nights a week. And um, it was just one of the most insane environments. I know UConn got out to a really slow start. Uh, couldn't get into the offense just because the the crowd noise really was a factor. And as someone who was just watching the game, I was pretty disoriented just by the, how loud it was. Um, it was just a truly insane environment. Um, and I understand why Bill Self has like a 95% win percentage there, I think, since he took over, like um, was not necessarily super sold on home field advantage anymore. I feel like it's not as big of a deal as it used to be. And now um, after coming back from Lawrence, Kansas, I think it's like, I'm a huge believer. I think it means, means everything. And I think that, um, Kansas at Allen Fieldhouse is like borderline unstoppable. So a four point loss isn't really anything to to scoff at. Ryan, you were there as well, correct? I was, yeah. So I was like the only UConn fan amongst the Kansas fans, um, which was fine. I mean, I was still like around, you know, some UConn people that were close, but no, echo everything Madigan said. It was definitely like the top. Being a huge college basketball nerd, like top of the bucket list in, in terms of venues to check out, um, you know, just, I mean, you the top five matchup with UConn-Kansas, like I, I had to go. Uh, now living in in Denver as well, it was just a, um, not too far of a, of a trip. Um, but yeah, I think the thing that stood out to me most was how, like the arena, it, like, like Madigan said, it's just all bleachers. And it's somehow 17,000 people can fit in there. It does not look like that at all. So there's really not a bad seat in the house, which is so awesome. Like I was relatively high up and it didn't feel like that. 
Um, but yeah, just like with the whole um, like basketball, um, like history museum all around the arena, you walk around, there's, there's one hallway that has like all the great players um, from like Paul Pierce and uh, you know, like Frank Mason and, um, and be like, I'm, I'm leaving out a ton of players, um, but they are like all, all along the wall and it has like their stats and accolades and everything. It's, it's just such a cool uh, venue to check out. So yeah, I definitely recommend anyone who, you know, ever has that opportunity um, to check it out. It was, it was awesome. And, and, you know, obviously didn't get the win, which was, um, um, you know, would have liked to, to get a win there, but I can't, couldn't have asked for like a better game and everything. It was, it was an incredible experience for sure. Yeah. One thing I will say is I was pretty surprised by the amount of UConn fans that made the trip. Um, yeah, I don't know definitely. how well it carried through on the broadcast, but section 13, I think there was one other section in like across the way, um, like across the auxiliary student section. Um, there was a really good turnout. And I, I know that uh, some of the highlights that got posted or stuff like that, you could hear uh the UConn fans at, at times, which um, given how freaking loud it was in there, I think isn't crazy. Um, but I think there was a lot of people there. You could see a lot of UConn folks in Lawrence, in Kansas City uh, the next few days after. So pretty cool that I feel like the UConn fan base is one that normally doesn't travel as well outside of Madison Square Garden. I feel like that's pretty fair to say. Um, but it was cool to see a lot of people show out. And, um, you know, they got rewarded with a good game and a great experience. What was the chirping situation? How are the fans around you? The Midwest is just really nice. It's people, people are just really kind out there, man. And it's so cliche, but it's so true. I sat next to this like middle-aged Kansas couple. They say they used to have season tickets. They only go to a few games a year now. They're doing all the chants. They're going nuts for 40 minutes. They're talking to me. Um, I, I went over to them in the first like five minutes. I'm like, is it always like this? Like, is it always like this here? And they're like, they looked at me like I had three heads. They're like, yeah, it, it is. Like they were, they were super nice. Um, told me a lot about like the K, like the KU traditions that they do and all that. Um, and they didn't, they didn't stop for 40 minutes. A lot of people in our section stood just because I think it was a better viewing angle. Uh, they were right there, right there with us. Everybody stood in our section for the whole 40 minutes. I did have someone handing out free L's uh, to me outside of the, uh, outside of the fog when I was walking out and um, that was really all we had. But overall I was surprised uh, cause I was, you know, after a few beverages, I was maybe willing to mix it up a little bit more than, than I usually would. Um, but the Kansas fans were so nice. It, it was, I feel like, you know, we're not getting into the like blue blood debate, but it's just like two programs that just like have, have always been pretty good or like been pretty good recently, but they've never had to like cross paths except for that random, uh, there's no insecurity game. right uh, like we're you know it's just two really good programs it's like hey let's uh let's see what happens roll the ball out play for 40 minutes um but no everyone was really nice yeah i i was also pretty shocked by how nice everyone was even even the students so i like went out to i think it was like jayhawk cafe or whatever after the game where it was just mobbed with kansas students and i was like one of the only uconn people there obviously and they were all just coming up to me like hey man like great great battle like tough game like you came all the way out like i respect that and i was just like i thought i would get a lot of chirps and people just talking shit to my face but i didn't like i don't think a single person did it was it was honestly shocking uh but it was great 
for UConn, I, I do think obviously they still feel really good given all of the circumstances, especially Kansas getting off to a good start, especially like how well they shot from three. Kansas shot 65% from three, nine of 14. Uh, you know, they they really basically it was it was kind of like a neck and neck game until they just started hitting some threes really hot at the end. Uh, and in that respect, obviously like super encouraged by UConn's performance. They did it without Castle. They did it with a bunch of guys having off nights. And um, I thought it was it was a really impressive performance and a loss. It's the kind of stuff. Obviously, if you're the reigning national champions and a team that intends to be elite, you don't really talk like that. But it was their first road game of the season. It's a completely new team. This is not last year's national champions. Uh, they This team is different. Uh, they are really, really good on, on their own as well. But uh, for a lot of reasons, I think you got to be encouraged by Kansas performance or by the performance at Kansas, uh, even though they did do some some interesting things, I guess, to beat UConn in that game. Uh, does someone want to explain the switching thing in, in layman's terms? <laughs> Well, I mean, I think everyone understands like what switching on a actual ball screen is, especially if it's like on the top of the key. But Kansas was switching everything, even like off the ball. And I think that's the important distinction is that like UConn's sets have so much motion, so many pin downs, slips, um, because one through four, everyone can, you know, dribble, pass and shoot. So everyone is a triple threat. Um and because of that, like, you know, it results in either layups and threes. And, and it's just is why their shot chart is like analytical porn for college basketball, because it's like, you know, they're either getting twos or threes. And that's what today's game is all about. Well, Scummy Self knew that he had one through four guys that were athletic enough to make those switches without really there being any, you know, space for them to operate. So Tristan Newton is just sitting up there dribbling up top, up top, and getting no separation. Nobody's getting themselves open on the wings or or down low in any kind of release valve. And that resulted in a lot of that side-to-side passing. And only due to his insane shot-making ability was UConn even hanging around there. Um, and that's definitely like a blueprint. I can see other teams starting to replicate uh, you know, we saw North Carolina do it a little bit, except they're just not as well drilled. Uh, but that is definitely like a something that could be like an, an exposure thing going forward in the season is like basically in, ensuring that there is on the catch somebody right on you and that's switching one through four. I would say like, like Patrick just mentioned that UNC tried to do it. It's not easy. It's incredibly hard to do, especially with how much motion UConn has in their offense. Um, You need to have guys that are versatile enough and athletic enough and also smart on defense enough and well-coached enough. All right, I'm done with saying that. um, To execute the game plan, right? And um, Kansas has those guys. They have every, I mean, everyone on their team, um, you know, th- one one through four is extremely athletic. They probably have the advantage over UConn at every position there. Um, so they were able to disrupt them and, you know, be there right on the catch and kind of just shut down everything. Um, luckily, Tristan Newton turned into, you know, Steph Curry, and that was that was what kept us in the game in the first half. Um, but, yeah, like, like 
North Carolina was trying to do that originally, like uh, uh, most of the game. Um, but they just got beat on a lot of backdoor cuts. Basically, UConn's game plan is to, um, you know, try to throw in as much motion as they can and then eventually let the defense uh, make a mistake. And Kansas wasn't doing that. They were just, it, it's so hard with how much motion UConn has. There's so many switches that need to happen. I mean, I know you guys probably saw that that uh, Twitter video that was going around where the guy was breaking it down. I mean, it's just switch every like two seconds, um, and they were they were executing to perfection, honestly. Um, and UNC just got caught on a couple. You know, it was like kind of later in the shot clock. There was you know a lane that would open up, and UConn would attack that and and score with with whether it was a caravan, um, you know, on like the the angled cut or like the back door. Um, he would get open for a bucket and that was just getting shut down by Kansas. Um, so I think teams will definitely try to emulate that. Um, whether it's successful, we'll see. Um, I'm sure, you know, I don't know if Gonzaga is going to be athletic enough to, to, to do that, but we'll, we'll see. Yes. Sounds like you have to have a super high level of talent to, to pull that off. Yeah. That's what I was just going to say. Like Kansas is sixth overall and adjusted defensive efficiency in Ken Palm. Um, Gonzaga is like 19. North Carolina is like closer to 50. Um, but something to keep an eye on is Creighton and Marquette are both inside the top 10. So, you know, it's not just about the number in Ken Palm. Like you said, Goodman, it, it comes down to athleticism and, and the matchups too. Um, but you think of like Creighton with Kalkbrenner in the middle, you know, that he'll be able to kind of just stick on Klingon and then they can still try and switch one through four. So um, just another reason to look forward to that matchup in, in January. But um, I, I think Stephen, Stephen Ashworth will get absolutely abused if he starts switching on people. Uh, he He's no Dewan Harris as far as like a dude that can like guard bigger guys. And I think even if UConn has some problems with that one through four switching, we saw in the second half that like, and, and even towards the end of the first, the solution was just to space everybody out and bring out Klingon or Johnson in just like a one, one, one pick and roll and let the two of them kind of create from that. We trust Tristan Newton in that situation. I think in a couple months, we would trust Stefan Castle in that situation just to say, make a play with your roller and anyone that can kind of cut, but keep everyone you know away from potential switching and just let Klingon's screen setting do the rest. Um, like think if they had, if it was Kalkbrenner, um, you know, okay. Ashworth switches on him. Boom. You give it to him or you just go by the guy if Kalkbrenner starts to hedge. So I think they figured that's like their silver bullet. If it does get to be that kind of, you know, clogged up offense that we saw in the first 10 minutes, it's just say, okay, throw the playbook out and just run, pick and roll and, and, and figure it out from there. So we've, we've mentioned Tristan Newton a few times here, and I wanted to have a separate discussion just fully on, on him and everything that, that he's been up to, uh, including the Kansas game, but really for, for UConn in general, uh, obviously helping them weather this period where, where Castle is out, uh, but really just showing out in an amazing way in that Kansas game. I mean, to talk about that being a good game and an overall, you know, like, championship will and spirit performance from UConn that's Tristan Newton and that's you know uh, Hurley said it after the game it was a virtuoso performance from Newton 
Uh, and and uh, he's just been delivering uh, really, really consistently. Right now, he's their leading scorer. Um, uh, what what does it mean for UConn that Tristan Newton is playing at this high of a level right now? I mean, he's sixth right now in Evan Maya's plus or minus, uh, fifth in the country in in like Evan Maya's offensive, what they call OBPR. Um, and as we saw, you know, he that's the closest Shabazz Napier type of night that we've seen since 2014, where it's like the no, 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 yes, and he's thrown up late in the shot clock. Um, but he has enough of a track record now where you, you can't complain about that. Uh, so he is that guy that you can give it to at the end of the shot clock. But more importantly, like, especially the way Cam Spencer bounced back against North Carolina, um, barring any injury, there's not going to be many nights where like both of Cam Newton are off. So, you know, if Cam Spencer is off and he's getting shut down by a much more athletic dude, that's fine. Tristan Newton, we just saw can step up or Tristan Newton, you know, didn't need to be the guy against North Carolina. And we saw what Cam Spencer did to the Tar Heels. And we'll talk about that later. I have the utmost faith that like one of those guys is always going to be on. And it's, you got to give a credit to their consistency that like, that's the backcourt that you have. And then when you throw in castle, uh, there's a level of consistency there that the elite teams have and they've got it. Something else I'll throw out there. He's Tristan Newton. Um, is sixth in Ken Palm's player of the year standings. The only people that are above him are PJ Hall from Clemson, Terrence Shannon, Illinois, Kyle Flopowski, Duke, Jaden Liddy, San Diego State, and Zach Eady for Purdue. I mean, that's just that's just ridiculous. Those are some of the, I mean, legitimate first team All American candidates. But I think the thing that I'm like having trouble coming to terms with, and it's I need to come to terms with it because it's legitimately happening, is like Newton is starting to like become on the basically like on the same plane as the Kemba's and Shabazz's uh, like, and like the, U, the, U, the great Yukon guards that we've seen come through this program. And at first I was like, okay, yes, you won a championship. We had an all time great team. He, he was lead, leading score in the national championship. So he's obviously a big contributor, but he's not, the guy that like will carry a team like, like, you know, um, Kemba and Shabazz into a title. And these, this team that we have this year is better than the Kemba and Shabazz teams that won the title. So I'm not saying like he needs to carry this team, but the level that he's playing at mirrors the Kemba and Shabazz seasons. And just realizing that and actually being like, okay, yeah, he's, he's like act legitimately that good is just, weird to come to terms with in my mind but i need to start coming to terms with it and i think all uconn fans do too because he is having a ridiculous season so far um in terms of you know across the board honestly efficiency um he's a little bit down on three point but um just his ability to bring this entire team together and will them to wins um it's it's something that we haven't seen in a while and it's incredible yeah, Goodman, I agree. I mean, he's he's entering that territory. That performance against Kansas um, is not normal. Pe- people don't come in to, to that place and do that. That was kind of the biggest thing that I had heard from a lot of the KU fans while I was there is like, that's not supposed to happen. He's just getting by guys at will. 
and it gives him so much space. He's really comfortable hitting those deep threes. Uh, and it's all within the flow of the offense. And, you know, sometimes that offense is six seconds left. It's Tristan Newton iso ball to get a shot up. Um, but like you said, he's kind of earned that right to do that. And I think the addition of Cam Spencer, just having another shooter along with Caravan out there for, for stretches gives him so much more room to operate. Um, it takes a lot of pressure off his back when he gets into the lane. He doesn't have to force up a shot. He can kick something out uh, or he can try and get fouled. So he's just a really, really special player. And I think he'll certainly get more and more All-American looks as the season goes on. Because uh, I feel like this is all, like he's playing within himself. I don't think he's playing out of his body. This is not like a, it's not crazy for him to be doing this. He's he's playing really well, but I think this is pretty sustainable, especially with the way Hurley has the offense set up. Due to Andre Jackson, Sonogo, and um, Hawkins's production last year, he was like, okay, yeah, he's like a dude who can get a bucket when he's the fourth option and occasionally bail a team out. And as you guys both said, like we're seeing this year that no, he's, the dude is in total control at all times. And I, you know, that little lull he had last year to start the to Biggie's play, which was his first step up in conference play. We're not going to see that this year. He He's going to hit the ground running and he's going to give you that 10, five, five floor triple double ceiling night in and night out. And when that's, when that's one half of your uh, backcourt, I mean, that's, that's the reason why you're a top five team in the country. Yeah, that's such a good point, Patrick. He has more triple doubles than any of those guys that we we always talk about, the, the Kemba Shabazz's, um, those folks. And like triple doubles are kind of a weird stat. I feel like they're they're a little overhyped nowadays, but like in college basketball, that still matters a lot, I feel like. And, you know, Goodman, Patrick, I feel like you guys watch a little more NBA than I do. Do you guys think that Newton is an NBA guy now? Because, you know, at the beginning of the season, end of last year, I just didn't really see that as an outcome for him. Um, but I feel like the way that he's playing now, I, I could totally see him latching on at some level and, and working his way into the rotation of an NBA team. Oh, I was just looking through. I just typed in six, five guards that I, could, I can try to find like a, a, a somewhat similar comparison. Um, I don't know off the top of my head. I think he does have a G League. Like he will get a cup of coffee with the G League. Uh, and I think you just have to then chalk it up to fit and opportunity. But I think on a team where he's not asked to be the first option, his shooting percentages would go up. He consistently makes the right reads and he's athletic enough to be like not exposed on switches and defense, which is like the big thing in NBA. So I think he's going to get a look. And if he continues on this trajectory, I think that's, which even a look is an insane step up from where we were looking at him a year ago. And that's the thing. He, he has developed so much already. You have to give it to him. You have to think for him to go to ECU, he must not have had a ton of awesome offers coming out of high school. I think uh, Patrick, when we spoke with Aaron Jones, he kind of let us know that, that uh, Tristan felt he was a little uh, overlooked coming out of high school goes to ECU, plays for three years, and then comes to UConn, has been working on his game. He's he's a much, I mean, he's he's a similar, obviously, but he's a much improved player from last year, and he's taken advantage of an opportunity with increased usage. But I think, yeah, I mean, it's, it's his development that gives him upside, the fact that he has really great size for a guard. Uh, he has enough defensive ability, like you said, Patrick, and, but he's a really, really 
smart and strong offensive player. So it's super exciting about about Tristan Newton. And I agree with uh, what you said, Ryan, about the fact that he's making a case for himself to really be named among that upper echelon of, of UConn guards if this season goes in the special direction that we think it does. I mean, I think he has uh, every case in the world for all of those things. And especially, obviously, if he gets some sort of All-America nod or even just first-team Big East would be a huge, huge, huge thing. Ryan, feel free to shoot me down here. But what about Devin Vassil as a comparison? Um, I feel like Vassil is a little more athletic, but I think it generally fits the like like. I think the the main thing with Newton's NBA potential that has me like a little bit hesitant is that kind of athleticism. He's not the quickest guy. He's got the size, you know. He's he's six five, one ninety or so. He definitely could could uh put on a little bit more strength. But no, I, I think that's I think that's a fair comparison. Um, I mean, he could definitely help out a team. I think it's just it just comes down to the right role and the right the right fit on on a certain team. He's definitely not going to be, you know, like relied upon to be one of the top scores or anything but um yeah I'm, i i definitely think he he can be, make an nba team though for sure well yeah we'll see the team's got multiple future nba players uh we know that there's probably uh two on two two looking next year and um yeah i mean i think newton's like you said certainly gonna have a shot he was invited to the combine last year and again, with improvement, would have a better shot for sure. I think we can move on from the uh, the Kansas game and just talk about the next next game up. I mean, again, f- Friday night, super intense. You're in Kansas. You're, you're flying back on Saturday. And uh, boom, with, uh, with 48 hours or less so until you got to prep for, for, Kansas, for UNC at Madison Square Garden. The Huskies bounced back, though, played a really dominant game. They were leading from three minutes in, uh, one in convincing fashion. They did it in a different way because they can. This time it was Cam Spencer leading the charge, uh, both on the scoreboard and in spirit and in our hearts. Um, Really impressed by the way they bounced back and also really excited by seeing Stefan Castle back in there, I thought. He showed immediately, even though it was not like a glorious performance in any way, played 10 minutes. Uh, he, he certainly showed that he's, he's a multifaceted contributor in that, in that return. So uh, yeah, lots, lots of good stuff from the UNC game. What did you guys think? Uh, Hubert Davis is a, is a fraud. Can we, can we get that out there on the record first? Um, and, and just also, can we just talk about how, it's just an absolute shame that we, it looks like John Shire and Hubert Davis are both frauds. It, it, I just, I hate that for the research triangle. Uh, it, it's just terrible, terrible news. But it's be bad for it, donations. Yeah, must be awful to be UNC right now. Um, but no, as we alluded to before, like you know, they tried that whole switching thing. Uh, but North Carolina, it's it's uh, you know they didn't have like the 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 dudes that could that could execute that scheme, and yeah, I'm not gonna lie, like you know I had I I took a lot of flack from my friends because I was terrified before that game, with all of those people being limited, um, 
Caravan's dislocated finger. Cam Spencer has like seven turf toes, apparently. Donovan Klingon nursing the foot. Stefan Castle on a minutes restriction. It just all of that spelled nightmare fuel with like, okay, they're going to drop this close game. These guys are going to get play and aggravate something or they don't play and then they get waxed. It just, I, I didn't see a winning scenario until I saw Cam Spencer's black shoes and his first three and the, the fire with which he was playing with. And we'll get, we'll get deep into that. I had all of my friends pissed because they're, they're, you know, they're trying to to do a little betting here and there. And I'm saying, no, don't touch it. Like, I'm not sure what UConn's got. It could be, could be ugly here for the good guys. And they're all calling me a scumbag and sandbagger because Cam Spencer's playing great. Alex Caravan is even is contributing without a three point shot. Um, that you know they did not skip a beat, and clearly you know love the home cooking of the Garden, and you know in one game corrected the trajectory of this team of saying like oh no they are absolutely a top five team in the country, and now people are saying they're the best team in the country because people forget that North Carolina was steamrolling people before. Barring a an absurd display of like one on one ability from Villanova in the Bahamas, that was North Carolina's only loss. They rolled Arkansas. They absolutely demolished Tennessee, and UConn beat them by ten. So, and we can dive into like the specifics, but to see Cam Spencer bounce back like that, I think is the biggest story. But the second biggest story is how Donovan Klingon. 50%, 60%, whatever you want to classify him. He didn't have the stats, but he battled Baycott down there, and I think he came away as the victor in the individual battle. Yeah, I, I thought uh, defensively in that matchup, he had like literally in the early possessions, I thought he deed him up really well, and then the shot just like clanged in a different direction. Someone else's shot clanged like right to Baycott, and then he got a foul. Uh, and that was his first foul. I, yeah, I thought Klingon. I thought Klingon did well in there. You could tell he was a little. Uh, he was not at one hundred percent. Thinking about the lob that went to him, where he where he barely got off the ground and did not complete the uh, the alley oop attempt. But defensively, I thought he was so strong and and did overall well in that matchup, and then finished really really strong in that game despite maybe not having uh, the strongest performance offensively. I mean, uh, in the second half, they they shut him down, though. I think Baycott had two points in the second half or three points or something like that. So um, just, you know, again, just just so impressive by UConn. Caravan, I was a little worried about him. Uh, you know, obviously we find out the injury, so that uh, lets us know that there's a little bit uh, explaining what's, what's going on there, but... Uh, his shots were not falling. I think he was admirably kind of keeping it up and and taking those open shots when they were there. And eventually some of those big ones fell uh, towards the end in that UNC game. And he was kind of assertive throughout in order to, to kind of keep it going. But uh, Tristan Newton also had a really good game, uh, which, which was awesome to see. So, um, and solo ball folks solo ball coming through career high 13 points his shot his three point shot started falling uh so i think i think those guys what we saw from all of them even through the injuries is is huge and 
Cam Spencer, I mean, is it the shoes? We, we have to ask those, uh, maybe everyone. I'd love to know how many uh, fans are going to be wearing black shoes at the next uh, next UConn game at Gamble or XL. Don't forget the white socks too, the calf, the white calf the socks. Look. Obviously, you have to complete the look. And let's just get this part out there. Um, I think we have to talk about the other players, but all right, let's let's talk about all the other players first because uh, because you know I want to talk about Cam Cam in in great detail. But what do we think about Castle's return first first and foremost? What would you guys see from him uh, in his ten minutes of action out there? I forgot how good he looked when he's on the floor. Like he's just so insane at a freshman at six foot five. Like that finish that he had. Uh, for his only bucket from the field, you know, he kind of got the ball tipped, readjusted in midair, still was strong enough to put it in. Um, I'm sure there's someone, some like out of touch UNC fan that saw him as like the eighth man off the UConn bench. And it was like, this is the greatest basketball team I've ever seen. Like it, it, it is like an insane luxury for UConn right now, just to ha- have him basically play the minutes that like Hassan Diara or like, you know, solo ball should be playing and he's like one of the five best freshmen in the country. So um, it worked out really well. That's obviously not going to happen going forward, but he's just such a special player and I'm super excited to see him unleashed. Um, Hopefully for the Gonzaga game, they're going to have good tune up against Arkansas Pine Bluff this weekend. I imagine he's going to try and play 20 to 25 minutes. I feel like obviously different injuries. I'm not a doctor. I'm not the trainer. With Klingon, it was very clearly like 12 minutes, 18 minutes, 20 minutes, 25 minutes. I feel like they have a lot of rest between the Arkansas Pine Bluff game and this this UNC game. Could easily see Castle doing 20 or so minutes and then um, all systems go against Gonzaga. So, um, yeah, he's he's awesome. And I thought Klingon was really good, too, um, with two uh, two tough games against Dickinson and, and Baycott. Um he really neutralized uh, Dickinson on the rebounds. He's the, he was the leading rebounder in the country heading into that game, and um, he really opened up opportunities for everyone else. So he definitely wasn't healthy. He didn't have the best offensive games, but he really uh, – I, I walked away from that Kansas game and the UNC game really impressed with how he played. So I think it's just such a luxury to have them uh, – to have Klingon and Castle together. Like, you can tell he's an NBA player. The way he moves – the way, like he he's just so much more athletic than most players on the court. He knows where the ball should go. He's a great rebounder. I was most impressed in this game, honestly, with with the boards he pulled down. Um, I think he missed one like after an offensive rebound, but it's just so evident that he is an NBA player. And to have a guy like that when we already have the team that we have is just it's, it's it's unfair. I'll say it again. Like last year when we had Klingon come off the bench, it was unfair. This year with with Castle, it's it's awesome. Um, in terms of Klingon, so I was also really impressed with the defense he played. I know we've talked about that a little bit, but also just from a from a team standpoint, I think early on in the game, Baycott had like four points, four rebounds or whatever in the first like five minutes, and Klingon picked up two early fouls. This is something we talked about in in the previous Kansas podcast. Again, like something to worry about is what if Klingon picks up a couple of fouls and then Samson Johnson comes in and then, you know, he's more foul prone. So he could get into foul trouble. That happened in this game. Both of them had two in the first half, I believe. Um, And they were able and and UNC, you know, made their runs and everything and and made a close game. And I, um, 
it was a yeah five point game at half, so it was close, but they were still able to weather the storm and push through that by you know like swapping them out um, when it made the most sense and just playing uh, within their offense and you know not um, like over committing. Um, and I think they did a really good job of that. Klingon ended up four fouls, but um, you know Johnson did a really good job of. Um, you know, providing that uh, rim protection when when Klingon was out, and um, you know, not not uh, giving up easy buckets. So I was just really impressed with how they handled that situation. You knew it was going to happen at some point, and Baycott is you know one of the best big men in college basketball. He's he's starting to become like the Perry Ellis, where it's just like, dude, you need to you need to like you need to leave. <laughs> um, I think I think I don't think this is his fifth year, um, but. Regardless, he's still a really good player. Um, one of the be- probably the best offensive rebounder in in the country. Um, but we did a really good job of slowing him down. I think with our with our kind of two pronged attack of of Johnson and Klingon. Um, and I did just want to share this real quick. So I was looking. The Twitter account posted the like defensive heat map. I think it was no escalators uh, when Klingon when Klingon is on the court and when he's off the court. So we shoot fifty six or we allow opponents to shoot 56.1% at the rim when Klingon is not on the court. And when he's on the court, it goes down to 48.1, which is in the 99th percentile. So he might not be having a great offensive game. Um, I mean, we don't really, as you you know have seen in these, in the eight games or nine games we played, we don't really need him to be a centerpiece of the offense. Um, but he's elite defensively still, even when he's not fully healthy, which is, um, you know, obviously a huge boost to this team. So I was just really impressed with with how he played. Yeah, can we can we put to rest the the Twitter conversation that Donovan Klingon isn't as good as Samson Johnson or oh Klingon's overrated? Like I thought he was supposed to be an all American. Uh you're you're telling on yourself if that's your opinion. As Ryan said, his defensive impact stays the same regardless of how healthy he is. And also, we need to remember that, like, he was not some big post move, you know, shout out, like, my you know, Connecticut reference, Mike Jaminski, you know, in the paint here, you know, with like pump fakes and jabs and everything. He was a vertical threat. He was a lob guy and, and got offensive rebounds and just laid it back in. Um, to expect that they were going to become some post-centric team that where they just dump it down low and, and he cooks everybody. That's not who he was. And to expect that transition from a freshman to a sophomore with the roster around would have been coaching malpractice to say, oh, we're going to focus on Donovan Klingon. No, there's way too much talent on this team. We're going to use Donovan Klingon's strengths to imbue the rest of what the roster has. So I, 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 every time I see that, I, I feel honestly, I can't, I find myself like feeling bad because I think he's such a good kid that like really, really wants to be that all American, but he may not get that status, but he's still going to have like the NBA attention, I think. And, and so, yeah, like, is he probably, is he going to be an all American? Probably not, but he's still going to be a top 10 pick. And he'll be laughing all the way to the bank. So I yeah, think please. People please are stop. people are expecting him to like have the post move that Sunogo did. And it's exactly just like he's he's not that guy. Like that's not that's not what he's good at. That's like he he's he provides so much else, so much other 
um, you know, to, to this team that it's not like, stop expecting him to just become this insane low post. Like he has all these like pump fakes and he has and, never flashed that. Right. And, and, exactly. and that's, and that's not a, that's not a detriment. That's not a criticism of him. Right. Like, like it's really hard for a seven, two dude to have post moves. Cause you're so freaking big. Yeah. He's also not yeah. going to need that in 16 months or, or, or exactly. 12 months or whatever it, the the post moves are not important to the NBA game, and he's an NBA player. Yeah, it, it's, why, it's very different. It's just, why spend an offseason learning that when you're going to be called to do exactly what you're doing right now, like you said, in 16 months? I think I, I heard someone made a good point that like his hips are so high, it's like hard for him to seal people. So again, why even bother? Just have him be the floater in movement and catch him off mismatches. I, I I think the staff is treating him in the exact way that they should. Yeah, and again, the, there's no need for Donovan Klingon to be taking 15 shots a game or whatever and just 25 possessions where they start by passing the ball into it. Like, it's just, again, we said that before when he was injured even. It's like, that was never that was never the deal. That was never the plan. Like, what, what do you think it's 1997? Antonio McDice is not walking through that door, you know? Like, come on. Uh, just, just Sick get reference. on what's going on in the game right now. And yeah, I mean, I think it's like, are you, are you mad that he's not like posting more better stats? I, I really think like that is maybe partially the, the knock is someone going, Oh, I'm looking at that. He's averaging. I don't even know what he's averaging. I, you know, it's probably not it's probably something I mean, in the single digits. There are, there are national guys out there doing that. Saying, yeah. "Oh, I thought Donovan Klingon was supposed to be this huge force." Oh, la, la. and then, we, and then, yeah, I know just, who you every, are. Yeah, and and then everyone just has to separate like NBA prospect from college basketball player and on court contributor. Those are obviously like completely different things, and we operate in a different universe. We're not collecting NBA prospects; we're collecting college basketball players to win the games. That's why Cam Spencer's on the team, baby. That's and right. National, we're collecting national championships. Exactly. And and you do it with Hoopers. So uh, who, who wants to talk about Cam Spencer's game? Uh, it really was like an inspiring performance. It's the Cam Spencer game. It's really not even just about the 23 points. Obviously, it's it's the new shoes. It's the socks. It's the technical foul. <laughs> you know, like knocking down a three and getting a technical foul, you know, like Dan Hurley deep down probably loved that. And, uh, you know, just just being up in someone's face who's who's nine inches taller than him or something like that. Uh, you know, so much to love. Uh, but who wants to talk about the, the Cam Spencer game first? I can start. I, I just was really impressed. I think that's where that kind of veteran presence comes in, too, because you could tell during that Kansas game, um, he was very clearly hurt. He couldn't get his legs under him. The, the shots were still looking there. Even that shot that he missed at the end of the Kansas game, it was on mine. It was just short. And that's what happens, apparently, if you have turf toe on both of your toes. So um, you could tell that he wanted to bounce back and kind of show like why he came to UConn and, and what type of player he was. And he just was lights out from the start. And he had that edge to him that I think we've seen a little bit. We We've definitely heard stories of him being... Uh, an ultra competitor, but uh, for whatever it was, maybe it was Madison Square Garden, maybe it was UNC, I don't know. Um, but he was just fired up beyond belief, and it was pretty w crazy. He was bringing UConn and, and Duke fans together across the aisle. Like people were 
so impressed with what he was doing against North Carolina. I saw people tweeting that Cam Spencer should should have been in Durham, like he belongs in Durham. And, you know, there's a lot that goes into that. But I think it just shows, like, he's he's a killer. Like, he's an unbelievable shooter. He is just so confident. And I think this was the first game that we saw. I think I mentioned some takeaways. Usually he's not a shoot first kind of guy and he's, he's kind of looking for his shots within the offense. And sometimes it's to his fault. I feel like he's passing up some open threes um, to move the ball, find the extra shooter, make the extra pass, um, which is really great in terms of Hurley's offense and how they move the ball. Um, But I think for whatever happened this game, I don't know if there's bad blood or something, someone needs to do some digging, but um, he wanted blood. Like he, he, he came for war. And he just was like, I'm going to take down North Carolina by myself until uh, uh, we win. So it was pretty awesome to see him get in the face of Baycott. Uh, that gift that came out of that was was just really incredible. It was just like kind of a random moment. I feel like he's been pretty mild-mannered up until then, but I feel like everyone was here for it. He, he wanted his own blood. He was out for his own blood. That's That's who he is. He's such a psychopath that he like was just, you know, like, self-flagellating himself after the Kansas miss, which like, again, you are on two bad feet. Not a single fan that knows anything was like, oh, damn, why did Cam Spencer take that shot? Or like, oh, you, he sucked. He, he, he gutted it out. And most people are, you know, tr- you know, respect him so much more for that. But only in Cam Spencer's brain, in Cam Spencer's brain, he was saying, I sucked. I let the team down. I'm worthless. I'm terrible. And he's just like negative self-talking so much that he had built himself into this rage. And we saw it all come out against North Carolina and Armando Baycott happened to like be caught in, you know, catch a stray in that sense. Um, And it's, it was, it was, it was amazing. He's Billy Hoyle. He's just the dude that is in the zone. And um, I mean, it's to have like an on-court persona of Danny Hurley is, is such a luxury. I know we mentioned this in takeaways um, from the UNC game, but I just loved <laughs> during the post-game presser uh, when they asked, they asked Kim Spencer about it. And he was basically like, yeah, you know, just like got caught up in the moment and like let the emotions get the best of me. Like, um, and they, I think they, they specifically asked him if he had gotten a tech before and he said, I don't think so. Um, and Hurley was like, he gets a shitload of them in practice. So, you know, he is just like, he's that guy. Like he is that guy. Um, and yeah, like you guys said, the, the beef with him and Baycott was hilarious. Um, I think Baycott came out and was like, yeah, he wouldn't, he said some stuff to me that he wouldn't he wouldn't say at the park, but it's whatever. Like credit to him, he had a good game. And I loved on Twitter all his like former teammates. Um, yes, were literally quoting that and being like, "Nah, dude." Like he he would say this wherever, whenever. You don't know Cam like that. And I was just like, "Hell yeah, they they know." Like they they've literally played with him for years. So I told you guys. Yeah. <laughs> what did I tell you guys? Well, you should have done the bit before. I know. Madigan, you weren't there before recording the last podcast. I was talking to Ryan and Patrick, and I was like, guys, I think Cam Spencer is like a lunatic, uh, low-key, like a big shit talker. No, I really I said that he's a big shit talker. I, I was like, I think I saw him talking shit in like the New Hampshire game. You know, like I'm I was like, I'm I'm not sure, but I think, you know, and I 
I kind of, you know, we, we, we knew the persona about him, but we also knew that he was like a nice kid outwardly and stuff like that. And so I kind of had taken that, all that, you know, we saw him on TV and stuff yelling. And I took that to be, like you said, like the self flagellate, you know, like be like, oh, God, you know, got to make those or yeah, I mean that, you know, that kind of thing. But um, no, I think he's a big, I think he's a very big, big shit talker. Um, you know what I think it is? It's, it's the lacrosse genetics i think like mm-hmm. lacrosse players are essentially like you know a, another version of like hockey players where there's just non-stop chirping and it's part of the game it's part of the culture um and i think that's what it is because he he almost like plays like a lacrosse player out there with um you know kind of like very strictly fundamental but then like a little bit of flair here and there and you know like with the fakes and the jukes and you know he's using every little bit of his athleticism to sell things. Um, and yeah, I mean, he, he could be a Duke player, but he's only doing it. He's not tripping anybody. He's not being a dick. He's just incredibly passionate. And I look, I know that's, you know, rose tinted glasses coming from, you know, fanalists here, but I, I don't know. I just, I've, I've not been like that enamored with a player so quickly. He's got the best old man game that I've ever seen. Like, it's just like exactly. he, his game is going to he's going to stay playing at this level for so much longer than he has any business for just because it's like, you're right. He I wouldn't say he's the most athletic guy in the room, but he's maximizing his talent. He's an incredible passer, uh, obviously a great shooter. And he's got a little bit of a slow release, I would say, but he knows what he needs to do to get space and get a shot open. Um, he He's just so much fun to watch. He's like, I know there was other people that. Hurley was targeting for this role. And I think um, Spencer kind of fell into their laps uh, in some sense, just based on how I heard that he became available, but like, he's just the perfect fit. He's for someone that's a grad transfer, like mercenary for lack of a better term. Like I kind of expected him to take like nine, 10, 11 threes a game, like some crazy, like Jordan Hawkins style numbers. Um, And it's just so cool that he fits right into this offense, picks up like nothing. Like he's been here for five years and is able to move the ball. He had six assists with no turnovers. Um, and he's not even really handling the ball that much outside of Newton, and that'll go down even more once Castle's back. So he's just a really high IQ offensive player. Um, and the defense has been a lot better too um, over the past few games. So I think once he kind of figures that out, um, he's going to be an absolute force. And if he's shooting like this, nothing else matters, honestly. Quick update, he, he may, on, oops, go quick ahead. update on Nick Timberlake stats. Um, it's gone down to 3.6 per game. He just went one for five against Kansas City. My GPA was higher. (laughs) Oh, yeah. That's all I have for that. I I don't think Cam Spencer's the most athletic person on this podcast. Like, I that's how, and and that's not a that's not hyping us up. That just shows like the you know he is. I mean it's. Do I'm on? Are we going to do the bit here? You know, fundamentally sound, lives in the gym, coaches son, you know, plays for the game on a oh, psycho C. <laughs> oh, that's a good one. I think that's it. We we have been striving for a nickname all the time. I have had some duds. I don't even want to talk about my bad nicknames I've had for him. Psycho all C part of the journey. All Psycho part of the journey. C. Yeah, I was thinking about it. You know, oh. you, the. The attitude, you know, he's, you know, he's just a wild one. 
yeah again, we might have to cut this out and print some t-shirts <laughs> you you know what i said to you guys before the podcast you know he's saying awful awful stuff baycott even said so he said you wouldn't even say it to a person in the park he's saying awful awful stuff to these people on the court he's not doing garden variety shit talk he's saying some really really vulgar shit i think and that's uh, that's why we're going to call him Psycho C from now on. Uh, that's that's uh, maybe not PC anymore. I'm not sure we'll have uh, the FTC uh, get back to us on that. But uh, I think I think it's actually a decent comp, like spirit-wise, with uh, the college basketball legend Tyler Hansborough that we're uh, that we're uh, biting here. But look, it's just it was a huge performance. I think that's the number one thing for me is just it was a big game. Multiple UConn players were hurt. First half, caravan shots still aren't falling. And Cam Spencer just came up big. He, I think he scored nine of their, he did. He scored nine of their first 13 points. You know, like just in the early going, a little rough and tumble. Things can go anyway. Cam Spencer. Late in the game, other stuff is happening. Cam Spencer makes buckets happen. Uh, and it was just, uh, something that you can really get behind uh love the attitude love the spirit and he's also a guy who was overlooked you know similar to, to tristan newton so again this is not like some soft duke ass pedigree you know bullshit kind of team cam spencer is a dog you know he played at loyola he probably never ever thought he'd get a shot at a big game in madison square garden he wants so badly to go deep in the NCAA tournament. Like nothing else matters to him. And, you know, the fact that UConn won last year in a way means nothing to him. You know, he's he's going for the ship this year. So I think that's another thing where you're just, you, you're concerned about like with Andre Jackson being gone, Adama Sonogo being gone, Jordan Hoggins being gone. You're like, are there enough dogs? Do they have that? Do they have those dogs within? And, you know, Cam, Cam Spencer is potentially two or three or more uh, dogs within which which is what you need yeah there was that goodman article today that came out that said like dan hurley said he found the formula or whatever and the, the formula is is really groundbreaking stuff yeah it, it's crazy between hawkins spencer caravan newton um just some really talented shooters um that can beat you in different ways whether it's off the catch off the dribble super deep whatever it's uh it's really impressive it's um it's like a a rare like everyone kind of dumps on the transfer transfer portal where it's like oh you know this so, you know kids these days if they don't play they're they're dumping their name into the portal and, and yeah that can be true but it you know Spencer and Newton are like a positive example of like people that you know started at Loyola in Eastern Carolina and then and then obviously Rutgers for Spencer and then were able to play their way into a bigger stage and onto a bigger program. That, that's a positive for the transfer portal. And that's saying that like, wherever you start, if you become someone, you know, become someone with a valuable asset, like Madigan said about the shooting, you're going to find yourself in some very interesting, potentially life-changing and money-changing options. And that's, you know, that's the positive from the portal, I think. And I think it's really cool, by the way, just everyone seems to comment, just UConn's offense, very sophisticated, uh, really impressively and expertly run. Uh, 
pretty cool. Pretty cool to have after years and years of watching the uh, dribble around the perimeter and then heave up a shot later uh, offense. I just think it's like so, so refreshing. And especially, you know, like the UNC game, the way just they responded to any like UNC run by just like creating a good shot and like getting a layup and scoring and making it a non-issue. And uh, I thought that was really how they like went downhill uh, in the end of that game there. And uh, their ability to do that, that's, that's really the, the mark there. On that same note, um, I forgot who it, it was. It was a halftime show and it might've actually been during UNC halftime, but, they asked the whoever was on the ESPN halftime show, um, what is most impressive about this UConn team and, and like what Dan Hurley has done at UConn. And he just talked about half court offense. And it's like, imagine hearing that four years ago, like what Aman was saying when we were just passing around the perimeter and basically like a glorified Cincinnati when we were just, we were dogs on defense. We, were, we could hang our hats on defense, but like, we just didn't have the personnel to execute what Hurley wanted to do, but we didn't realize that. We're just like, uh, I don't, I don't know. We just, we look like shit on offense. Like it's just not working. And to see the growth, I mean, obviously Hurley's grown as a coach as well, but to see the growth of the offense from, you know, Hurley's first year um, to now where we're an absolute machine is just been so cool to watch while while still being really quite strong defensively yes on the rebounding front which is you know still how they foundationally are winning a lot of games but yeah to- totally agree it's 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 been a super impressive thing and it's a huge key and then again just like stacking dudes you know like making it work uh even even all the way down to Hassan Diara who is you know one of their best perimeter defenders and apparently one of their most efficient players just overall as well I think something happened when RJ Cole hit that game winner against Villanova. There must have been some type of like soul snatching because this is what Villanova. Right. Yeah. There we go. This is what Villanova was doing to teams from like 2015, 16, 17, 18, 19. And then, but it wasn't just, they only snatched the offense from Villanova because they have Dan Hurley's defense. They have their toughness. They have their, their mentality, but all of a sudden, like the, the, the cuts and everything, like it's, it, it is, it's a dad, it's like dad basketball. We're like, Oh wow. Great, great cut. You know? Oh wow. Like, you know, set great set screen. You really, really hit the guy hard. Oh, they're diving on the floor. Like dads love this UConn team. I agree. I mean, I I think I don't want to generalize this much, but it kind of reminds me of those offenses that Gino was running um, with the women in like 2015, 2016, just because they had it was a little different because they had the three best players in the country. But like they had so much talent, but there was so much spacing, a lot of motion, a lot of backdoor cuts. And and that's still stuff that we see from from the women's team today. It's a little different now just because of the injuries and everything that they're going through. But um, Hurley's just doing everything he can to get the ball in the hands of his best players as much as possible. And sometimes that's running, you know, seven or eight or nine or 10 different offensive sets a game. Sometimes it's just running the same play over until, uh, the defense figures it out if they do. So, um, 
it's crazy that he has such a deep bag of tricks now, like you said, Goodman, after really being such a defensive-minded coach for his entire career, and that's kind of what he built his reputation on. Um, but it's very cool to see him adjust and grow with the modern game and turn UConn into this like juggernaut on both ends that we've really never seen before. I feel like even with the 2011-2014 title teams, it was not like this where it was so balanced on both ends. Um, 2014 is probably a better comp, but uh, it's just a, a really, really impressive job that Hurley's done so far, both recruiting, transfers, everything. Wanted to run through some uh, scores from around the Big East. We've had a lot of fun just talking about what's been happening in some of the games. Uh, I think, you know, we'll we'll get our laughs in a little bit because uh, there are a lot of really great laughs across the Big East results. But first, I and I think we want to talk about, like, who's good. And that conversation starts with Marquette who just up and beat Texas by 20 math, 21 points. Uh, pretty big win for Marquette. Uh, they remain someone that's, that's scary, right? How, what are you guys, how are you guys feeling about Marquette? I'm very scared of them. <laughs> they're, they're an incredible team. I mean, Kolick, I didn't watch the entire game, but I feel like they have, and I know I mentioned this on the last pod, but like the depth that they have, especially at the guard position, can it like mirrors our team. Um, and just their offense is an also a well-oiled machine. They have so many guys that can put up um, you know, 15, 20 points, just like we do. Um, and I think they match up really well. I am, I mean, it it just makes me even more excited for for our matchups against Marquette. I don't know what you guys think, but I'm so excited for those games yeah um i think the thing you know we we knew what tyler Kulik was going to bring which by the way you know tristan newton is analytically performing better than tyler Kulik, but that's a conversation yes. that many are not ready to have tyler Kulik is very freaking good you know there's no disrespect there towards him i think we're more saying like hey tristan newton should be getting the attention tyler Kulik is but we knew what Cam Jones was going to bring. Like we knew what Oso Igadaro was going to bring. Like Joplin's a dude, but like it's like 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 Ryan said, the depth. Uh, like Ben Gold is coming in and giving them minutes. Like Chase Ross is really really good, and that was like those were the question marks around Marquette to start the year. Like all right, like can all these guys take the next step? In the same way that UConn's depth was a question mark, and both teams have answered that. Um, so yeah, they're an absolute wagon and those two games are towards the end of the big East schedule, if I'm not mistaken. So there's going to be the state again, we talked about how this, that Kansas matchup was like the first top five matchup since 2009. I think we said yeah. there's a chance there's going to be two more top five matchups before the season is over. Um, and Another addendum I wanted to add was that like I am so looking forward to Cam Spencer at like at Providence and at Marquette, where all these people are are gonna have like a half season watching him all of his antics, not antics, but like all of these gifts, and with all his ammunition, and he's gonna just absolutely feed into it. But yeah, Marquette's a wagon. Everyone else, not so much. But we can get into that. 
Yeah, Cam Spencer could drop 30 or maybe even 40 on like DePaul or Xavier. Uh, I think potentially maybe even Villanova, uh, something we need to talk about. Now we've now that we've moved on through the good portion of the Big East, uh, recent scores for Villanova, losing 72-71 to Kansas, losing to Drexel and St. Joseph's. These are their last three games. Villanova, State. folks. I, I actually have multiple degrees. Uh, and I think Villanova is fine. I mean, I don't know what what what's what's up with Villanova. Do they suck? Sh- should they be very concerned? Should they be uh, removing coaches? What do you think? I haven't been following that guy who <laughs> freaked out and was, you know, flaunting his degrees and fifty dollar donations or whatever the hell it was. But is he is he back? Is he uh, out on Kyle Neptune again? I don't know if anyone has an update sure, on I mean, that. I'm sure he's. Must not be pleased. I'm sure 1842 day is not going to be a pleasant <laughs> moment for the people answering phones uh, in, the, oh, brother. in the foundation, but uh, that's their problem. He, they're going to have a lot of angry phone. They're probably getting a lot of angry phone calls. I, you know, we've got Villanova fans coming up to us, tears in their eyes saying, how did you get rid of Kevin Ali? What, what did you do? You, you know, we need to know for no specific reason at all. Tell them they sent their academic transcripts to the to the athletic director. Tell them they 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 only listen to three point five students or better. The real answer is to break the law. Is if you want to fire if you want to fire a coach you don't like, but we can get into that on an, another podcast. Yeah, that's you know, there's there's lots of ways to get rid of a coach. Don't you know? Come, figure out your own shit, Villanova. Uh, but also, though, seriously, figure out your shit, Villanova. You can't lose to St. Joseph's and Drexel. Uh, you know, that's completely unacceptable. We will see. We will see about Villanova. Um, somewhere else in the conference, somewhere that we had said that we maybe had a little bit of excitement for, that would be the Providence Friars uh, under first-year head coach Kim English, who, uh, you know, again, we've said could be decent, inherits a good situation, blah, blah, blah. I mean, they had they had a good start to their season, but they just dropped a big one to Oklahoma lost by 21 uh Providence Friars folks any chance they could be a sneaky competitor in the league this year yes I'm still I'm still holding on to my Friar stock um strictly because Bryce Hopkins and Devin Carter I think is is a combination I I don't have any analytics to prove this but I feel like it's just going to consistently give UConn problems uh, I've seen just like spurts of their games in, in English has them playing hard. They, you know, there was not a lot of culture drop off between Cooley and him. Um, so yeah, they're, they're going to be tough. And I think they're a team that will figure it out. Um, I'm not worried about a, you know, a blowout to Oklahoma. There's been a bunch of weird results. It's more of like an eye test thing for me. And they seem like they're going to be good. They still have talent around them. Um, so yeah, no, like I, I, it'd be fun right now to dump on them and it's, I'd love to do what I'm doing right now to Villanova, but I'm still a believer that they're going to be tough. I'm going to be scared of Providence for as long as Bryce Hawkins is there. He's just unbelievable. And I know the big takeaway from that UConn Providence game to $2 Miller light night, shout out $2 Miller light night. Um, last year was that. Alex Caravan shut down Bryce Hopkins and he did because it could have gotten a lot uglier, but he still had 16 points and um, 
you know, was a force on offense all night. So I don't think it's always going to be um, that simple to just, I don't think you can just roll over Providence. Um, like people think he's just a matchup nightmare specifically for this team. Um, and they have other pieces as well. Devin Carter's great. So um, they're going to be scary, but I still think if I had to pick one, who's going to finish higher, I think I'd still go with Villanova uh, at this time, but I think it'll be close. I would agree with Madigan as well. Um, the weird thing, Villanova, it doesn't really make sense. I mean, they have two really good senior leaders that have been with the program for a while. And then they legitimately have one of the most talented rosters in the country with the transfers and the and the recruits that they've gotten. Um, but, I mean, I guess I, if you have a really good roster, like, why are they not performing? It comes down to coaching a lot of the time. Um, but I, I think – you know, we, we saw it a little bit against UNC, which honestly was they won that game um, largely due to one performance. But they still have a lot of talent, um, a lot more than than Providence does. I think they will fare better in the Big East. Um, but Providence is still is still a good team. I would not be shocked at all if we dropped our game to them. In fact, or, or at, at Providence, I think we we probably end up losing that game, honestly. I mean, we are a juggernaut, but, you know, we're not invincible. So um, I think that's going to be – that place is going to be absolutely rocking for that game. Um, but, yeah, not not scared for them to actually challenge for any sort of, you know, Big East uh, tourney title or regular season title. But they're definitely going to be um, up there in terms of the the middle class of the of the Big East. I get a lot of um from this Villanova team 2016 Yukon vibes and throw out for the throw out for the sake of argument that Yukon won their conference tournament that was the AAC nobody cares about that but that was a team that brought in like what Sean Miller, Sterling Gibbs like really really good transfers they had what Daniel Hamilton um Jalen Adams I think if Correct me if I'm yeah. wrong. Sean Miller, Sterling Gibbs. Sean, yeah. Um, like that was a very, very good team that had top 15 preseason expectations and, you know, had a good AAC tournament, but again, AAC. And they were, they had a tough first round game against Colorado in the NCAA tournament. And then they got absolutely blown out by Kansas and exposed. Um, but I see that with like Villanova right now, where like the pieces are there. It's just not being cooked up right. That would maybe be a solid year for Villanova, though. I mean, you know, given given the circumstances. Yeah, they were a top but, 15 team. Yeah, they're trying to figure it out. No, I agree. I, I mean, but yeah, they, they've got time to figure it out. But, you know, these these losses are looming. We, we kind of made fun of them for losing to uh, Penn in the last podcast. But then after that game, they strung out a couple of wins. You mentioned the North Carolina. They beat Maryland, Texas Tech, Memphis. So you're thinking, okay, uh, maybe they've got something in order, but again, set setbacks, setbacks. All those teams stink. Yeah, yeah, they were. Sure. I mean, they were. They blew out Memphis, and I know Patrick, you're not a Memphis fan, but and Maryland has proven to be pretty horrible, but they were. They did blow them both out. So, and you know, for what it's worth. Oh, it it would not surprise me in the slightest if UConn maybe dropped the road Villanova game. If they get on a little bit of a heater and they're they're too talented not to have a couple outlier games where it's like, oh, wow, okay, yeah, there's the talent. and But that 
like Madigan was alluding to before, like that doesn't mean they're going to be a threat to any type of like title for the conference. Oh yeah. Yeah. No, no, definitely not. It's just embarrassing that they lost to Drexel and Penn because it's like, it's not even the big five, but it's like in St. Joe's, like it's just every other team in within an hour of Philadelphia. It's just a really, it's, it's a really tough look. Like it's like if UConn was, you know, like the 2016 team, but they lost to like, CCSU and UMass and URI and UHart or something like that. Like it would just be weird. It just doesn't make sense. Or Wagner or something like that. It'd be horrible. No, don't. Um, another team we probably do not need to worry about, but we maybe do need to have a very serious discussion with our children about is the Xavier Musketeers. Uh, just suffered an 87 to 80 loss to Delaware, a uh, future member of FBS uh, and Conference USA. By the way, Delaware, congrats to everyone involved there. Um, Xavier is four and five. Uh, I am, I am, uh, you know, it's, I think it's time to move on from the idea that Xavier is going to be good this year. I know that was not really uh, a prediction that anyone had, but it might even be worse than expected over there at Xavier this year. Um, St. John's. Has anyone been keeping up on St. John's? They are up to some interesting things. Four straight wins. The Rick Patino project has lots of people excited, as we all know and love. Uh, Rick Patino himself on Twitter has been really, really excited. He's even discussing uh, global policy in very interesting and nuanced ways. Uh, but his team has rattled off four straight wins, including West Virginia uh, and Utah. I guess those are the solid wins there. Uh, is is St. John's uh, is St. John's powering up? What do you guys think? I'm not counting out Rick Patino. I think I've said this every time we've we've brought it up. Um, I want to check in with them like mid January. By then they'll have played UConn, Villanova, Creighton, uh, Providence. I think they could realistically go like two and two, maybe three and one um, in, in those games. And I'm I just. They're, they're a tough matchup for teams, I think. I, I think Joel Soriano is, like, super underrated in the conference this year. Um, I, I think he's in the conversation for the best big in the conference, um, which I don't think is crazy, but maybe some people will. And, yeah, it's just Patino wins games, man. He shouldn't be tweeting, but he knows how to coach. And uh, I, I'm just not I'm not worried about the the early season stuff. And we'll, we'll see how this team looks in, in a few weeks. I think – when Madigan said like about Villanova being like there, there no way they're going to threaten the big East for title purposes, but they're going to be like, Oh damn, we have to go play them on the road. That's going to be a tough game. I, I, I put St. John's in that camp. Look, yes, they are like, Oh, you had something to say Madigan. I would agree. And I, I think that was the case, but I know that St. John's thought they were going to sell out the, UConn MSG game and I know that they've been opening up those tickets again for UConn fans for someone that buys UConn tickets in bulk uh, and sells them for the oh. MSG game so that that could be another pseudo UConn home game I, I was at that UConn St. John's game last year and um, that has to be one of the most embarrassing moments for anyone affiliated with with St. John's that I can think of because it was a tough look and there's a lot of them looking back in the last 20 years hate that for uh, the Red Storm fans um, I mean, yeah, like when Patino's not doing racism online, he does have like a good like mercenary 
group and kind of like in the same vein as Villanova where there's so much talent that if you catch them on the right night, they're going to buck their head. They're going to be really, really good and really dangerous, but I don't trust the, the, sorry, the sustainability of them um, in the long run. And as far as Xavier, man, as a, uh, as a Cincinnati native, it is so much fun to take a deep dive into their social media. They are, they're, they're, one foot from the ledge right now. And they are so dejected and it is so awesome given how like insanely cocky and antagonistic and delusional that they were. Like it takes a lot for Xavier fans to not be delusional and to say like, Oh yeah, wow. We really stink. You must really stink. And that's what that Delaware loss did to them. I saw one tweet saying like, all right, well, like, I guess the only thing we can look forward to is like maybe beating UConn at the Cintas Center. <laughs> like, that's where Xavier fans are right now. So move right along, take them back. Mm-hmm. Not interested in anything that Musketeers do. They're in a tough spot too. Like, I, I think we talked about this before, but Fremantle being hurt, like he's he's kind of the only guy that can really um play at like that elite level. Uh, and you know he was going to be kind of the guy this year. So oh, he losing absolutely him sucks. abused Caravan. Yeah, Those. I mean he's like Bryce. He's like very different than Bryce Hopkins, but he's the same like matchup nightmare. Like Hopkins is too big, too strong, too fast for for Caravan. And I feel like Fremantle was like just too quick and and too much, too perimeter focused uh, for for Caravan to keep up. So just a matchup nightmare for UConn. So it's good that he's not playing this year, but sucks that it was due to injury. In terms of St. John's, we'll be seeing them relatively soon. They visit the XL Center on Saturday, December 23rd. That'll be an 8 p.m. game on Fox. So uh, we'll see you in Hartford on the streets uh, hours before that. And should be a good one. UConn's uh, Big East opener, which will come right after the Gonzaga game next Friday the 15th. Uh, that's the Gonzaga game in Seattle, Friday the 15th, 10 p.m. Eastern tip there. Uh, then they'll have the start of Big East play at Seton Hall on December 20th. Uh, just to round out our little Big East convo here, uh, Seton Hall is not so great. Uh, they're five and three. They've got losses to uh, USC. Uh who do they have losses to? They got USC, Baylor, Iowa. They've lost to. Uh, so I think I think uh, Shaheen Holloway is quietly building over there. He's uh, hoping not to draw too much attention and just slowly building for the future. Uh, obviously, you know a team that UConn lost to on the road last year. So, gots to avenge that. Got to open Big East play on a strong note because it's coming. It's coming soon. Kadari Richmond. He's, you know, God, you got to get rid. This is the final chance to to put that to bed. Uh, But until he leaves, I'm always going to be scared to see in the hall. Oh, you know what? Let's. uh, We don't want to pile on here. And, you know, everyone is doing the best they can in life and uh, and all of that stuff. Last podcast, we were cracking some jokes about Georgetown uh, we actually were recording before their game against Merrimack, which actually did go down to the wire and was a uh, near loss that Georgetown was able to turn into a win. 
Merrimack's coach, uh, I don't know if you guys saw this, Merrimack's coach after the game, he was called for a technical foul for like throwing his towel over the back of his head and to the bench. He got called for a technical in the final like two minutes that, you know, you could say essentially decides a one possession game here. And he goes off. He goes, he said, look, if this game's not, if this isn't a buy game for Georgetown in, in, in their home, that technical foul is not being called. It's unbelievable that something like this is happening. Um, and so did that decide the game or was it already? It was like, again, it was like one thirty left and it was a one point game, you know? Yeah. So it did. Yeah. Damn. Yeah. For sure. Wow. For sure. Um, yeah. Yeah. Definitely go look it up. I mean, the coach just like the coach is a very like, you know, you could imagine a low major D one coach, right? Like he looks, he looks exactly like, a central casting low major D1 coach. And he's just like, like Phil, like Phil Martelli Jr. Sure. Yeah. He looks a lot like he looks like he and Phil Martelli Jr. go get beers together all the time and talk about the podcast that they love. <laughs> um, but anyway, Georgetown, unfortunately, uh, the beneficiary of some good fortune. And then uh, they end up really getting burned by some bad luck on the referee front. A TCU player steps out of bounds while he's on his way to heaving a last second three. It goes in. They win. They beat Georgetown. Tough year for Ed Cooley and the boys already. You hate to see it. Could not be happening to better people down in Georgetown, really, truly. They are 309th in adjusted defensive efficiency in Ken Palm. I've I've never seen a Big East team that low. DePaul is considerably higher. And DePaul was giving up. 2.1 points per possession to Texas A&M last night, that which is insane. To schedule home and homes with impossible these, like, Patriot League teams, but you know, wow, something to do. I guess they're an old rival. Well, whatever. Creighton, we didn't we didn't really talk about Creighton. Are we are we scared of Creighton? I mean, I, I know I have been very anti Creighton, calling them fluffers and everything, but I'm almost worried I'm steering too far into that that I'm going to look like an idiot because they are really good. They are a top 15 team. Um, I just don't buy like the top five buzz. And that's kind of like where I call them fluffers, but they are still really good. Yeah. I'm, I'm very scared of them. I, I think they're a really good team. I, um, you know, I think UConn Villanova, I think those are schools that have kind of figured out the NIL stuff. Um, Creighton obviously is not, I, I kind of feel like if Creighton had their NIL act together and they, were able to keep Kaluma and, and Nemhard, we'd be talking about them as the number one team in the country, like legitimate um, Final Four national championship contenders. That's not the case now with them gone, but they're still a really good team. Kulk Brenner, um, I know he gets a lot of flack. He's a really good player. I don't care what anybody says. He's he's really good. Um, and he is the, exactly the type of person that could negate uh, Donovan Klingon and kind of replicates Klingon uh, defensively for for the Blue Jays. So, it's going to be a really tough matchup. I think they pack in like what 20,000 or something crazy to their home stadium in Omaha home arena in Omaha. So um, that's going to be a really, really tough environment on the road. But like I said earlier, when we started this, I don't think anything's crazier than Allen Fieldhouse, And um, UConn was able to get by that after some second half adjustments. So could pay dividends later in the season with some crazy big East environments, because I don't think anything will top what they went up against it at the fog earlier this week, earlier last week. I, I would say I am probably the most strident about UConn's just overall chances to kind of 
have a really, really good record through Big East play, even with some of the good teams there. Marquette obviously being the one that that we're concerned about most. I'm certainly concerned about Creighton. I think where my my confidence comes from is I I expect UConn to do better with that uh, mid high and middle range of teams. Uh, just in an overall sense, I I expect UConn to do better against Villanova, Providence, Seton Hall, St. John's, Xavier. Let's say if we're just comparing to last year. In aggregate, I think UConn will do better than that. And I I really could see UConn even getting a season sweep of Creighton or Providence, you know, someone someone like that who is pretty good uh, in the league. And then I think there's about four or five teams that UConn should sweep and get all two. And then, you know, a few others where anything can happen, but I think UConn honestly should should as well. So I'm I'm generally pretty bullish about about UConn in the Big East my my meter has been like I was really really high preseason I I backed off off of it a little bit uh, quite a bit uh you know like right before the season and then now as as the season's gone on UConn's better than I thought to be honest and a few Big East teams are are worse than I thought and so yeah that's that's kind of where I'm at I mean Creighton like like Madigan said it's going to be a tough team no matter what it's going to be a really tough team on the road, but I really like UConn's chances to beat Creighton at home and, um, you know, again, just do really well in the Big East slate overall. So the last thing I'll say is, like, it the we talked about Donovan Klingon not being the offensive force, but he is still on the team. He is still a throw it up, and he's up there, he'll get it type of person. Um, for any team that doesn't have a seven-footer, or a very athletic, like 6'9", 6'10", dude. And there are a lot of college basketball teams that are really good that don't have that. We immediately have an advantage. And then you, when you throw in Samson Johnson and you, and you dig deeper, you see all the other advantages. Um, and I think that's like an automatic trump card that we can pull and we have pulled for the last year of saying like, okay, yeah, they're really good, but you know, Push comes to shove, we can just throw it up to Donovan Kling and he's going to get it. And that's where I think, like, even if they stumble a little bit in the Big East and they end up as like a two or a three seed or a four seed again, as we saw in last year's tournament, what teams that are, um, you know, 13, 12, 11, 10 seeds have what UConn has, and then they get a little bit of momentum, and then you trust the coaching staff, and next thing you know, you're in the Elite Eight playing for another chance at the Final Four, uh, which is something that, like, I was not honestly expecting. I, I had said that they, you know, would be a Sweet 16 type of team uh, coming into this season, and I'm proud to put my hand up and say mea culpa because – they they've looked so far advanced. I I was expect I wasn't expecting the Empire Classic to be the blowouts that they were. Um, I don't know. It's just it, it's crazy to see how how quickly they've hit the ground running. Yeah, I mean every person that had to make a leap to make this even a possibility has done that. Like Caravan, um, you know he's been kind of hot and cold this season, but he's still much better and much more versatile. Uh, than he was last year. Tristan Newton is firmly one of the, what, 15, 20 best players in the country. Um, Klingon battled through some injuries, and he's still making such an impact on 
on both ends. And and Cam Spencer, like we said, is like the perfect fit. Um, he's not Jordan Hawkins light, but he's a perfect fit and is able to kind of balance everything out that Hurley's offense has going. So um, I've been really impressed too. Steph Castle hasn't even gotten going yet. I, I think he's just going to be a huge X factor. I, I imagine, and I'm hoping that there's going to be just two or three games this year where it's almost like uh, what we've seen on the women's side with like Paige Beckers or Brianna Stewart or Diana Taurasi. It's just like Stefan Castle is the best player on the court and he's just going to go out and win the game. And maybe it's one that doesn't mean that much or one that's an easy one, like a, um, like a DePaul or a, a Georgetown or something like that. Or maybe it's one where there's a lot on the line and those teams, whether it's Villanova or Marquette or Creighton, just don't have the horses to hang uh, with the type of athletes that UConn has out there. So it's uh, it's pretty incredible. But no, I mean, I was with you, Patrick. I didn't think a repeat was even in the cards. And it's still incredibly hard to do. There's you know, really only one team that's done it in recent memory. But it is 100% in play. You look at the betting odds. UConn is one of the, I think they're like fourth or fifth uh, best odds to win it all. So it's possible. And it's not just us being homers it's no the eye and, test the analytics everything and i i remember those florida teams they they had the type of start to the season that uconn did where there was just like oh holy shit this is gonna happen like they brought everybody back there was no lull there was no hangover there was no kind of like false gold type of situation they hit the ground running and i was looking through just kind of like right now in the history this we're, again, caveat is that we're incredibly early. It's not even New Year's yet, but this could be the most wins in a two-season stretch in the program's history. I'm looking that to see that back in 90, 95, 96, they went Elite Eight in Sweet 16. I don't have their records in front of me, um, but then also 2009 – no, because they missed the tournament. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's it, the, this two, like when you look at the, the entire season from two years perspective, this is borderline unprecedented. It's amazing. Uh, the team is, the team is a unit. It's a wagon. It's a juggernaut. It's, it's all of those things. Uh, we got a $2 beer night coming up. Uh, keep an eye out for that folks. That is going to do it for us. Thank you all for listening.